day, everyone. Thank you for joining us here today. We got uh, this is Echo Wiley. I've got Phyllis Warren on the air with me as well today, and uh, we have an amazing guest on today. Her name is Sabina Dennis. She originally, when I met her originally, was at the. Um, Rebellion for the Forest Rally in March of 2021, and she spoke so wonderfully, eloquently, it has never left my mind. We're going to be speaking today. Uh, Phyllis is going to be taking over the show once again because it's Indigenous History Month, and we're going to be talking about the nature of food foraging and its history as well as what's going on. Thank you, Sabina, for joining us today. Hello. Hi. Thank you for uh, having us and acknowledging uh, that it's Indigenous Month and it's something that we can all celebrate and say thank you for and thank you. Absolutely. You're very welcome. And here we yeah. go. Phyllis is on the air. This is Phyllis. You you guys have met before so or spoke, I should say. So have fun, ladies. Hi, Sabina. So to further our, our conversation... Um, Let's talk about the history of foraging in in the forest for foods. Uh, you know, we hunted and everything in, in the forest, and today some people still go and berry pick. So can we build on that conversation? Yeah, I was just speaking with my mother, who um, she really collects a lot of medicines, and the one that we're thinking of right now is Arnica. The Arnica flower, which is blooming right now, is, is what's on our list. But there are, throughout the whole seasons of the year, there are different plants that we harvest and animals that we uh, hunt throughout the different seasons. And during the springtime, it was a lot of time to collect a lot of different root medicines. And a lot of medicines are potent in the spring when they're shooting new life. Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's moving into summer now. So we're looking at uh, the harvesting of different flowering plants and flowering medicines. Mm-hmm. And, um, looking forward to, of course, our traditional berry picking season, which is coming up um, with the first starting with our strawberries, our wild strawberries, and moving into uh, later on in the season the huckleberries and blueberries, of course, as well as our, our beautiful Nawas, our Ningwes soapberry, was a valued uh, that berry of trade for our people to the coastal nations. Um, often the Ulik and Greece trails, we would uh, often trade soapberries because they're valued for their medicinal properties and um, also, yeah, so we, we really continue to practice these traditional sustenance gathering for our, our strength of our people to this day. And often many of us require these medicines for our uh, vitamins and these natural, these natural uh, properties of these plant medicines and things to... Um, make sure to maintain our, our vitality and health throughout all the seasons. So we, we still to this day require a healthy land base for that to be able to sustain. Yeah. And so the soap berries, um, 
what conditions do they help medically when when we end it, take them? Um, from what I hear, they're they're sort of like um, really high in vitamin C, and so it's always good to aid in any sort of um, if people are in any way their immune systems are low, it can boost the immune system as well as it's known as an antioxidant as well, so it can clear out some of our contaminants within our bodies and replenish and nourish. They're really high in vitamins. I don't know all the vitamins that are in the soap berry, but I know that um, we take it traditionally to maintain um, good health throughout the winter seasons. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's full of nutrients and vitamins. Yeah. Right. And the arnica, you know, mm-hmm. that's for pain, is it not? And what other conditions can it help? Um, as far as I know, you know, like arthritis and any sort of joint pain, nerve pain even, mm-hmm. or um, different, it's a topical, it's used topically on, on top of your skin, not internally, so it can be applied you know, in, in a variety of different ways to the body. You could do a steam bath or use it in your sweat lodge ceremony or you could um, infuse it into different oils, uh, tincture, and all these methods work for relieving pain um, caused by whatever disintegration of bone, uh, joints, all those, all those uh, inflammations. Right, right. Yeah. And, and you know, my mom always used to talk about rat root, which is another topical that you can use for arthritis and other things. But also, if you digest the rat root as a tea, it can help your digestive system and, and such. Have you guys tried collecting rat root? I haven't in this territory, but I've been brought from back east some of my friends, they dig that rat root and brought me some. And uh, they explained to me to just nibble a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. Really help with uh, basic function, everything, like uh, sort of like a tonic as well, where it could aid in your even vocals if you're a singer, which I also am a singer. And so they advised to chew on some of that before we sing. Right. And the power singers, too, I heard use that. Yes, yes. And then let's go to uh, Devil's Claw, because that's another, you know, that has multi-uses for pain. And and I even heard that it's really good for um, skin conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've heard. I, I haven't um, collected the Devil's Club myself, but there's a real particular way it's done. And uh, the utilization of it is really particular as well as it's, it's a potent medicine used topically as well. And I have used the medicine on myself for treating um, sort of uh, just pain, body pain and aches and pains. Um, but the medicines, the beauty of the medicines is, um, I was told by our elders, is that for every ailment there is a medicine Yes. So, to me, that is, it must work the other way. 
for every medicine on this earth, you know, there is an equal proportion of ailments out there at this point, too. So it's like we have to acknowledge that um, we have to heal along with our Mother Earth. Yes. Yeah, there's that reciprocity between our Mother Earth and us, and that when we ask for healing from our Mother and we take the plant medicines, we also offer something back in return. Yes. And we we talk specifically to that plant of our request and of the person and the ailment, and we request that plant's aid in healing that person. Yes, and what I heard too is that the most that is given is tobacco. And then we mm-hmm. talk to the plant as we're harvesting it and thanking it for growing. But it is going to be used to help so many people with this ailment and that ailment. And that we wish it was strong growth again so that we can come back and harvest more when we need it. Because we don't take out the whole patch. We just mm-hmm. take what we need. Is that mm-hmm. not true? Yeah, that's a real, um, it's one of our laws, actually, uh, and it seems to be a universal law of Indigenous people that you only take what you need and you use everything that you take. Exactly, you know, and um, the other thing about going into the forest for our foods is the the animals, Mm -hmm. you know, the rabbit, you know, uh, the partridge, the deer, mm-hmm. the moose. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we have wolf, but we use the pelts and, and everything else that we can from that animal because we try and utilize everything from the animals that we harvest. Mm-hmm. And to acknowledge the animals, too, is to acknowledge their knowledge their knowledge and what they have taught us, which is um, we observe the animals and and how they treated their ailments and how the bears, what types of medicines they brought to us. And many people believe that the bears showed us how to be medicine people, and we learned from them by observation of right. what they were eating. Mm-hmm. Yes, and even the streams and the rivers that we utilize for the fish, the salmon, the rainbow trout, you know, we harvest this to feed ourselves. And again, we leave enough that we can go back and, and fall on that again, right? Mm-hmm. And just to also always keep in mind how pre-colonial contact and I don't know how long after it it existed this way in our history, but that um, the grandmothers and grandfathers speak of how the land and the the fish were so plentiful within the waters that the whole river would become red with salmon that they spoke of walking on top of the backs of the salmon crossing the river. Yes. And how, how the animals were so plentiful roaming the prairies the buffalo, the herds of caribou, and the moose populations were really good when they moved from the east into our territory, actually. They didn't always reside here. They they migrated into our territory. 
and our grandfathers speak of remembering when they first came and and keeping track of them and by notching their ear. And in that way, they would be able to track their migration and their territorial boundaries. And that's the level of science and scientific observation our people utilized in those days. Right. So, yeah, the, the level of stewardship and knowledge of the land was, was critical in how we maintained the integrity of the forest for so long. And isn't it true that there was some tribes that used to follow the migrating animals so that they could harvest berries, harvest the grasses, the trees, and then they would bring it all home and the animal would come back to their territory? Wow, wow, that sounds so... It makes so much sense because there's so many migratory tribes that we are nomadic people. Like we we speak of traveling, having our summer camp, you know, our summer mm-hmm. fish camp. And many nations would come right here to where I reside, actually, because the fish were so abundant here that many nations would come and camp out. And in that way, we would be able to gather and celebrate and meet new people and network with our neighboring nations mm-hmm. from all Dakas territory. And then it extended by means of the Greece trails into other nations and our abilities to trade our goods to the our, our uh, neighboring nations, um, like the coastal nations, for the Ulican Greece was very valuable to our people and still is to this day like gold, like just precious. Yes, yes, and and that's what I mean. We traveled, we we harvested, we met, we celebrated, and then we went back home and we utilized what we collected, and we got ready for the winter. Yes, and that is the way nature has laid out for us. That is the way that all animals follow because it's the law of nature, a basic law of nature is that we provide enough for our children for the winter to survive in our families. Mm-hmm. And that's a, it's a way of life that wasn't until recently, you know, it's it was the way of life that everyone had their root cellar and their cash and their stored food for the winter. And it's only in recent times that we rely on governments and grocery stores and things to provide and ensure that we have that safety net of food. Yes, and preparing it for the storage, you know, smoked salmon, dried salmon, smoked meat, dried meat, they were all there for different reasons for us and, you know, the berries that were prepared in special ways so that they could last as long as they possibly could during the winter months to provide the vitamins and the nutritions that people needed throughout the winter time. That's right. Like our, our grandmother used to call the fish and the salmon brain food. Those oils are brain food. It's what kept our brains functioning beautifully. And even right down to the vessels in which the food was, Stored. The char was skinned and 
blown up and smoked, and then it was able to be a vessel for different fats that were harvested or meats that were rendered and and cared for in such particular beautiful ways and stored in caches in different locations where there may be hunters or there may be a, a camp for uh, spiritual purposes, you know, and so it's a beautiful, beautiful way that the earth provided everything we need and it seems that um, all those things are necessary still. It's just that we've we've forgotten the necessity of, of the balance between nature and our needs and how we what our needs have become uh, far reaching from from what nature provides. Right, and you know, going into the forest and finding mushrooms, berries, and on the shores of lakes, there was some um, roots and plants that could be harvested to have, like, the wild rice mm-hmm. to add to our meals, or, you know, the plant itself, the wild leeks, you know, that we could cook with our food, with our meat, you know, um, and that's what we're missing now. And with, um, you know, um, the white nation coming in, we're introduced to carbs, mm-hmm. you know, um, flour, mm-hmm. potatoes, you know, and that's why our people now suffer from um, being diabetics because it was not a natural food for us. That's right. That's right. And uh, it's become an epidemic of our people. Um, the diabetes. And uh, it is, our traditional foods are so far the gap between our traditional foods and what you can get at grocery store, especially in impoverished nations. You know, what we can afford as far as healthy food choices are really lacking. Because when you go and you see, you know, <clears throat> to buy organic produce compared to buying, you know, non-organic or or even produce at all. That's why our traditional foods are still utilized by Indigenous people because it's the best food and we still have some access to it. And I say some because the land base is so devastated that a lot of the moose habitat in our territory is diminished. Right. So, and um, same with the salmon in the Fraser River. Like right. everyone... The stocks are really low. So right now, Sabina, we're going to take a break and we're going to get back to the diminishing of our lands. So stay with us. Love your enemies. Kill the kafir who brought his false god to the eagle's nest. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Discover a world where knowing Jesus is a matter of life and death. Landlighter Theater presents Escape from the Eagle's Nest. Sundays at 7 a.m. and p.m. here on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
Shakespeare is coming to a stage at Theatre Northwest July 15th and 16th, but in the form of dance. Method Dance Society is presenting Shakespeare City, a whimsical post-apocalyptic journey to a world populated only by a small group of Shakespeare's most fascinating and mischievous characters. The performances will also include live music as well as audio-visual effects. Shakespeare City opens July 15th at 8, and tickets are available through theaternorthwest.com. Shakespeare City by Method Dance Society, July 15th and 16th at Theatre Northwest. Vantage Point is happy to announce their Youth Network Bursary Program, enhancing access to professional development opportunities in Vantage Point's open enrollment workshops and labs. This bursary is available to individuals ages 18 to 35, working or volunteering in BC's not-for-profit sector. More information on the Vantage Point Youth Network Bursary Program is available through the bursaries link under training at thevantagepoint.ca. Vantage Point, transforming not-for-profit leadership. Forecast from Environment Canada for today, mainly cloudy, wind from the northwest 20k gusting to 40, a high of 18 with a high UV index. Tonight, mainly cloudy with a 30% chance of showers, gusting northwest winds continuing, a low of 8. On Tuesday, mainly cloudy, more gusting northwest winds and a high of 20. Hi, now we're back again with Sabina Dennis, and we're talking about the foraging and and the forests and everything. But I want to get into now how our lands have been diminished by different ways and means, whether it's forest fire, whether it's logging, or whether it's the spraying from the glucosamite spray from colonialism. Stewardship. So, Sabina, what's your input on that? Yes, um, all good uh, things to mention. We'll start with the glyphosate because it's it's um, something that I know has been an issue, and there are different organizations, Stop Spray BC, who are working towards the stopping of the spraying, which. The glyphosate is only one of many different chemicals they use on the forests, and um, it's the reason it's really in the limelight is because it's the most popular product and um, used widely by farmers, and it's not necessarily regulated. Like um, for farming, for agricultural purposes, it's, it's, if you're a farmer, you can buy glyphosate and spray it. You don't need a license to do so. Whereas if you're working for highways or forestry, you need a license to spray these chemicals because it's very particular, the way it's sprayed so that it has the least damaging effect on the environment. So right now, the stop spray basically is, it's, what it does is it kills off of a lot of the um, aspen from uh, growing, which is, food for our moose, our ungulates, our um, deer, moose, all the different, even elk are in our territories now. And uh, it creates also a lot of hardship for our uh, berries, our fruit-bearing plants, our, our uh, huckleberries. It, it kills off everything. And uh, the argument that the government has that it's a better product than others is that with agriculture is that because of the tilling of agricultural lands, it releases tons of carbon emissions, which is a huge contributor in our carbon emissions globally. And so what the government's saying is that if you spray the glyphosate, it's a no-till method, so you can 
you can manage the what they call invasive species into their um, crops by spraying. And so it's a really tricky balance of, of what type of agriculture can be helpful to our people in the future with this fighting this climate battle. And so uh, with the glyphosate spray, it's, it's really hard to know what's the lesser of evils in this case. And um, my personal belief is that there should be no chemical spraying upon any lands or territories because of the collective and cumulative effects of chemicals on our planet. Right. And, you know, the waterways and obviously the bee species, is the, pollinating, the pollinators are in critical demand right now globally. So, you know, it's like, um, it's just one of many, many different uh, contaminations that are being used by governments and industries to create uh, a easier way for forestry to maintain their forests for roads and everything to maintain their roads with the, with the least cost possible to them. So like before when we were growing up, there was always crews of indigenous people. We'd have crews go out and they'd be bush crews and they'd do brushing and weeding. Uh-huh. And now, you know, it's become all these jobs are are getting filtered out of the economy because of these chemical processes that make everything cheaper and easier. So, right. you know, there's many reasons why it's it's devastating to our environment and our economy to just utilize chemicals rather than physical ability to maintain our forests. It's, and and it's, it, it's, go ahead. It boils down to cost, because with men going out there working and everything else, they can clear uh, an area, say, you know, 40 hectares in about two weeks by hand, whereas if you rent a helicopter or a plane, you have that done in an hour. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the saddest thing is, too, is like you're, on with the forestry topic is the deforestation and that is is catastrophic for our animal species out there especially with the wildfires how it ravaged through our territories here it's left everything basically there's very little left and there's a few little pockets of old growth and um, areas that are surrounding lakes that are supposed to be untouched but now that everything's logged in our territories, the logging industries are coming in and looking at these pockets of land to to go into where they're literally the safe havens for animals who are actually hiding. Right. They're hiding in these little pockets because people don't remember that the animals make homes. They have homes, very sophisticated little dwellings, and even the ungulates, like the deer, mm-hmm. they live, they sleep under big, giant spruce trees. I've witnessed it where you have gone through the forest and found deer nests where they make these these spruce trees go down to the ground. And so they, they chew off and break off all the branches underneath, and they bring their whole family in there. And here there's like about seven or eight little nests 
where they all snuggle in together for the night. And so people have to remember that animals have homes, they make homes, and then those homes are, are taken away from them. And where do they go? They have to challenge each other for other territories or leave their families and their babies behind mm-hmm. or pass away with the land that's been depleted of life. Right. And that's where forest fires, if you spray and you get rid of the popular trees, they slow down fires because they, for some odd reason, you know, they're a thicker wood, a thicker bark that doesn't catch fire and they don't seem to dry out that much. So it's a natural firewall that is That's built right. with them. And, That's right. And with animals, yes, they have to move on to new territory, and especially bear and coyotes and foxes. And then they come into the cities and they're deemed, you know, a bad animal that they have to put down. Mm-hmm. Instead mm-hmm. of relocating them somewhere to make a new territory and start foraging again. Well, it's like people don't realize the animals don't want to be there. They're only going there out of necessity. And that's the saddest part is that they have to, in order to find food, often bears will go to the dump, eagles, you know, all these animals, foraging animals and um, scavengers. So, yeah, it's it's become so dire for the animals. I uh, I fear for our children's futures, you know. And I've grown up in my time. I've I've seen wildlife. I've I've been hunting. I I've done all of the processing of the meats and smokehouse and nets full of salmon in the fall time and smokehouse full of drying meat and uh, hides on the rack for us to be tanning. But our children, you know, I fear that they're even going to know what these animals look like. Yes. You know, because um, a lot of animals nowadays are starting to reach to the brink of extinction. That's right. And once they're gone, there is no way of bringing these animals back. And that's like our salmon populations, you know. One of the most critical uh, foods of not only the people, but the bears rely on the salmon, all the wildlife and all nature's like reliant on those nutrients that come up the river and nourish not like everything along the way, the land, other fish, the waters, they nurture everything. And so it's almost like the the white blood cells that nourish our bodies in our blood, those salmon are like that. And for them to be diminished to nothing, it's it's almost like, um, it's like uh, dead, dead blood or dead waters. Right. And with the spraying, the water is being poisoned. Mm-hmm. And that's being carried down, you know, in our creeks into our rivers and therefore what is living alongside those waterways 
are being affected by these poisons. Is that not true? Oh, totally. And and still to this day, you see um, farmers who have their cows going right to the water and polluting. And, you know, you see contamination from different mines, Mount Pauly, where there's reopening and you see contamination from the Daco mine leaking for years and you see the contamination from all the, the pipelines that are moving through already uh, devastated areas that are uh, the cumulative effects of hundreds and thousands of streams that they cross right. and you know the environmental impact of that alone too is is humongous on our waterways um so you know there's all these cumulative effects that are on our lands that truly we don't we can't sustain industry unless it's a sustainable new type of energy resource that is renewable and sustainable we can't be just extractive any longer because there's nothing left and the next thing they have left, because the forests are all gone here, is, is the minerals. So they're going to be after the minerals. And um, they've already started in different areas within our territories, mining projects, gold mine, you know. And <sighs> it's just really sad that all they give us is these options. These proponents come in with industrial... Um, different projects where that's all we get. Where where are the proponents that want us to have, you know, solar energy projects or a, our own turbine in our own little river that could sustain the village, for instance, and, and more, maybe the towns, the outlying towns that wouldn't be damming the entire river and devastating our Nichako, for instance. Mm-hmm. That, they could be releasing cold water to aid our salmon right now. The Kenny Dam, they release only surface water off the top, which is warm waters, and our, our salmon require cold water for their survival. Right. So, you know, these, these things that we need to push the government to instill these, uh, safe keep, these, these safety measures for our salmon and, you know, these are things that are done in other places, so we really have to push our BC government to step up and, you know, reinstate some of those environmental laws that were stripped from us with the Harper government, like protecting our old-growth forests. It seems like a no-brainer. What we have left, the last 2% in BC, should be protected Yes, and, you know, with the mining and everything, they take away, they strip the topsoil, which is is um, the most important thing for plant growth, is that topsoil, because, um, you know, over the years, the leaves fall, branches fall, and it's worked back into the earth. But when you're striping that away, there's not the hardy dirt to grow anything and we're left with sand and gravel that's right and speaking of topsoil look at site c dam mm-hmm. they're going to flood the piece and uh you know that's probably one of the most devastating impacts that i've seen in my days and on earth 
here is is that project. It's so devastating. Yes, and and you know they have uh, they were supposed to do so many testing, different types of testing and everything, and they came back and said, "Oh, everything's good. Let's go." You know, and us British Columbians are the ones that are paying for Site C through our bills because we've had higher electricity bills than normal, you know, and um, they have hidden so much because we are now finding out that some of these tests and assessments were not done. Yeah, and, and even if some of them, you know, were overlooked and now it's costing billions and billions more because the infrastructure doesn't suit the terrain. They, it just, they're trying to build it in, in a wetland that's like sinking, basically. It's, it's a floating kind of a earth. And so they're coming up with all these engine, new engineering that costs billions and billions more, just like the CGL, like, Billions and billions of dollars it's costing over what they projected. TMX, same thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, along with that, I've heard a couple of stories of when they were digging down for Site C that some dinosaur bones were found. And they wow. were like, okay, well, pick them up, throw them over there, and let's bury them. Let's move on. You know, mm-hmm. so it could have been stopped to get those valuable Bones, and we can learn more of our history of the prehistoric animals that lived in the Peace River area. Yes, and how events that happened back in the day is like relevant to now. It's not something that should be covered up because they had to, to the animals and the populations back then went through different ice age scenarios and catastrophic events like what's happening to our planet right now. What we're, it feels like that is impending is, is catastrophic events that we've seen unfolding like last summer with the flooding, with the heat wave, with the fires. You know, we're starting to see these impacts of, of, our climate right it's becoming so dire that we do something and meanwhile it just seems like um the corporate elite and the gap between the rich and the poor is actually widening right so and that corporations have more power over the resources of our lands and that it seems as though There's even more of a drive to get more energy out, to get more oil, when right now it's, it's, we're supposed to be transitioning. Right. So it's really confusing when the governments aren't really doing anything about our climate crisis and our indigenous people are standing up and putting their bodies on the line to stop these corporations or to at least uh, call for at least dialogue from governments. So that we could discuss. So let's let's take a little break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about the dialogue that we can offer the governments. Okay, Sabina, we're going to take a quick break. Thank you. Join Two Rivers Gallery on Thursday for the closing of Mercedes Mink's Wobbly. Wobbly is actually on display through Sunday, June 19th, but Mercedes will be in attendance for the closing event on the 16th to discuss her process and works. 
Stop by to view the exhibit in the Rustad Galleria, then be on hand during the closing event to meet the artist. It's a closing event for Wobbly by Mercedes Mink, 5.30 Thursday at Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in Canada Games Plaza. Explore tools for creating a culture that actively embraces a spectrum of voices and lived experiences with vantage points, board fundamentals, board diversity, and inclusion. This three-hour workshop will help not-for-profit board members and executive directors learn key concepts and strategies for creating board diversity. Registration and full details are available through the calendar link under training at vantagepoint.ca. Board Fundamentals, Diversity and Inclusion, Tuesday, June 28th from 5.30 to 8.30 via Zoom. VantagePoint is transforming not-for-profit leadership with a host of downloadable resources. VantagePoint's team of knowledge philanthropists have written a book for leaders of not-for-profit organizations as a conversation starter. Titled A People's Lens, this resource challenges how we think about engagement within our organizations and provides stories of innovative people engagement, best practice tips, and perspectives from senior leaders. A People's Lens is available free through the downloadable resources page under media at thevantagepoint.ca. Forecast from Environment Canada for today, mainly cloudy, wind from the northwest 20K gusting to 40, a high of 18 with a high UV index. Tonight, mainly cloudy with a 30% chance of showers, gusting northwest winds continuing, a low of 8. On Tuesday, mainly cloudy, more gusting northwest winds and a high of 20. Hi, and we're back again with Sabina. Now, Sabina, I would like to talk about the practices of land management that the native people did for years and years without big machinery and stuff like this the men used to go in and brush clear you know by hand and that way we were able to maintain the berries and and the topsoil of our land and how we can pass this knowledge on to government so you Tell me how we should do that. Well, for me, um, for years, uh, groups, different groups of Indigenous people have been working actively at different um, avenues of protecting our and preserving our forests so that we can sustain. And one is um, food sovereignty, Indigenous food sovereignty, and um, they're really advocating for... um, land management practices to be instilled, which, you know, our people have always maintained through our governance structure, even um, that in Bacchus territory, we have a Baslats system, which is a potlatch system, and we have clan system, the matriarchal system. So we follow our mother's clan. Mm-hmm. Uh, within the system of the clans, there are um, different responsibilities, one for the water and for the, the land itself and for all the different um, animals. And so not only was there assigned roles of the different clans, but within each family they had a kale. And that kale is their land in which they harvest. So it was their responsibility to take care of their kale each family had. And that's a land mass that was passed down to them through generations. And so, therefore, every family had this wealth and abundance 
that they were able to uh, share with others, that they were able to trade. So I feel that our governance system, because it maintained so beautifully and took care of all the people, all the animals and all the land, is valuable to Canada, especially because it could teach Canada some of our natural laws and our universal laws that um, protect all people. So, for instance... Like the the law of uh, take only what you need. It's a very important law. So if we enacted that law into forestry, when they go in, they don't just clear-cut everything. They look at the land and how everything is valuable and maybe um, selectively log some trees. And they look at the land and see that everything there that's growing there is valuable. Mm-hmm. And so, And we also have to acknowledge how our indigenous nations have affected the European culture when they moved here and where they were when they moved to this continent and how they acted and how their governments treated other people and how democracy was actually formed because of partly our influence on the government itself in in, in how we conduct ourselves and our laws were infused into the government that is today. Right. That we see the democratic ways of our society today are much more, it's much more of a democracy than back when the Europeans first settled here. And our influence is quite strong and beautiful. Like our matriarchal system, can you imagine coming to a land where you're oppressed by your like in a patriarchal society where the women are very oppressed to come here and see the women in leadership roles and treated as as uh, even above equal in a way because of our ability to create life was revered. Right, and, and sustain life. Yeah. You know, because um, our mothers and our foremothers were the ones that went out and harvest the plants, uh, the berries, you know, the men would hunt and the women would work alongside of them during that hunt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that beautiful relationship that's become so out of balance in today's society where, you know, people are struggling for women's rights. They're struggling, the men are struggling for a place in society where they can feel like they can protect because all of those rights have been taken away from them by the government. Like, once upon a time, the men, if, if a woman was hurt or mistreated, they would have dealt with it. But nowadays, we expect the police to come in and deal with it, and they don't. In fact, our women are treated as though we deserve it in some way. Our Indigenous people are treated less than human, less than the rights of, of regular Canadians. Right. You know, and it's very sad that, you know, we have the RCMP that are also called the peacekeepers. But when it has to do with um, Aboriginal peoples, whether a male or a female, they have this attitude of, well, what did you do? You're guilty. You yeah. know, and and they have this um, 
they look down. They don't see a victim. And they should. It's true. It's, it's as though our people have become deemed inherently rapable by the mainstream society. And it's a terminology that's been used by many activists because it's the truth that genocide is actually conducted by Canadian government to this day. And I am only saying that because it's the truth. If you look up what genocide entails, everything we've, we've committed in Canada, the separation of families from their children, from their, the separation of a people from their land base, the, the taking away of culture and language, you know, it all, that is why Canada has been deemed a country that commits genocide. And it's a, it's a term that's um, very evocative of really harsh feelings because all over the world you see it. And you see it happening to other people and you feel the pain of it. But when it's happening to Indigenous people right here in our own country and we, we turn a blind eye to it, it is being complicit in a crime. And we have to we have to change our mind frames into a more caring and loving nature for our our Indigenous nations. Right. You know, like the educations you know, the residential school where it completely separated families and tradition and culture and and taught a different way of educating. And, you know, it was so sad. That's and, right. Like, just to make mention of the residential schools, I have to say that when I say Indigenous people are, are inherently rapable by uh, government, it is proven to this day when um, they're uncovering the bodies of Indigenous children and it's not considered a crime scene. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, oh, for some odd reason, it's like, oh, this is in the past, this, you know, so we're not going to, you know, bring it up and say crimes have been committed because we don't know yet. We have to find evidence. But they're not willing to to treat it as a crime scene where they need to gather evidence. They're, you know, depending on our Indigenous nations to go and um, hire companies to come and do their ground testing and things like that. And, yeah, the government has uh, put some millions into it, but... Truly, it shouldn't be on the backs of our people to find our own. You know, it's 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 just a shame. And I want to say, um, because I'm mentioning residential school at all, that my prayers go out to all the families and people affected by the residential school service system. By the, and we can't even call it a school because it's it's not a school. It's it was a place of. A genocide um, tool. It was uh, a concentration camp for children. Right. And it was a place that the government figured that they could take the savage out of the Indian and but never be accounted for. That's right. And the spirit and the strength of our people is so strong that 
even our generations now, like my children, when they hear Indigenous music and when they hear the culture, they cry because the Spirit recognizes that we are missing, we are missing our our beautiful language, our ears, our tongues miss the language so desperately that it's in our DNA and there's no taking the Indian out of us. It's impossible. We are who we are and even though much of our language has been taken away from us, our traditional languages, Mm -hmm. we work every day to recreate a dialogue that suits our spirits because so many of the the way communication is going in the English way, we have to actually reformulate our words to suit it. Right. You know, and along with that is our culture, our traditions, that we're starting to reach back and teach our children and our grandchildren. So then that way we can preserve what we had years and years ago. And also that now, in the times we are in, that we all are in it together. It's like we, we aren't living in the past, but we will utilize the past and the strengths that were taught to us and our, our, our morals and our teachings to bring forth to this future that we need to create a survival future. And that takes all Canadians, all walks of life. To do. That's right. You know, and that's just it. If we sat down with our non-native neighbors, we would find that we all have common ground. Because there's the climate crisis. Sit down, have a chat with us. We're not that bad. We might be able to teach you something, and you might be able to teach us something for our future, for our children, for our grandchildren, for generations to come. But we all need to sit down and have that conversation. And that's right. There is no racial war happening nowadays. There is is a war between the gap between the rich and the poor. And all the border controls across all the countries all over the globe are tightening up right now. And all over the globe, um, there's new legislation to stop people from protesting their rights against these mega corporations and oligarchic elite. So we are all in the same boat together, and we need to bridge those gaps of division that have been created to separate us and keep us under the control of um, corporations, basically, and and of um, whoever whoever's out there that maintains this this way of life that is just so threatening to our survival and that of all animals and species. So today I just want to say a prayer, and it's a Dachau's prayer, and it's it says this for each and every person that they can work on themselves. And it's a uh, prayer reiterated to me by Sheila Erickson of uh, Bernadette Rossetti. And it oh. goes, um, Great Spirit, I pray that everything goes smoothly today and that if I make a mistake, I might find out about it right away so that I may correct it. Okay, so yes, 
this is the way we lived. We we always spoke to our great spirits, our Mother Earth, and asked for forgiveness. And and it would be nice if non-natives could ask for forgiveness for what they may have done or not done. That's right. It's okay to make the mistake, and it's okay to humble ourselves in that mistake. It's okay to hold a feast for uh, to humble ourselves and to shame ourselves for our mistakes even, because in those mistakes is the lesson, and if we refuse to see the lesson, we never learn. So we pray, we pray that we see those mistakes so that we may correct them. Right, you know, and, and learn and go forward. That's right. There shouldn't be so much shaming. We're, we're taught to shame our mistakes. And it's like, it's like being ashamed of our, our greatest lessons in life. Right. And, you know, we can ask for forgiveness. And we can ask that we have learned from our past mistakes and go forward and treat everybody fairly and equally. And I think most of us want that back. And I really want to focus on our children. Our children are our futures. And if anyone has the time to spend with the children, speaking to them about protecting themselves, protecting themselves in from different um, manipulations that happen to our psyches through our sexuality, through our need for exploring different um, realms of our psyche, through some people end up turning to drugs, through our mental health, through all different sort of aspects that we need to become strong within all those areas, our spirit, our physical beings, our mental health, and um, all the facets that make us human. We need to uplift our children to a point where they feel secure and strong, that they can make decisions and that they have a say and that they're relevant. Right. You know, they are relevant and and everyone is relevant and that's a common ground that we have. You know, okay. and the climate crisis, that's another common ground that we all have. We are worried about what is going on. And if we work together, hand in hand, we can accomplish a lot. That's right. So, I mean, all the nations, all the nations have strengths, the four directions, all of our races, we have special abilities. And it's almost as though our technological world has brought us all together to a point where we can solve anything. Yes. We have the capability of evolution at our fingertips. Yes. Our step could be a step into evolution, and it's sort of like where we need to be in order to survive. Yes, so and right now, you know, Sabina, our over. Our hour is over, and I thank you so much for coming on. It's been a great hour. It's been great talking to you, and I hope that people listen to us. Thank you again. This is Phyllis from Community Echoes, and have a great day. Owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society, you're listening to CFIS-FM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 FM.